thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I am Conor Bumley and I'm joined today by Nathan Ridley as we look over the opening weekend of the Premier League season. And Nathan, the place to start today has to be Monday Night Football, Manchester United against Wolves last night. And we're going to talk about the VAR controversy at the end. Um, But I want to start with your overall thoughts on Manchester United's performance in the game. Yeah, uh, that is sort of the, it's took over the weekend, really. A lot of action on the actual weekend, but Monday night seemed to be uh, the big night for it. But yeah, I mean... I think everyone was unanimously in agreement. It was disjointed. It was it was a concerning start for United fans, even though it was a win and a clean sheet, which is it's what you want at the basis of it. But yeah, I think Eric Ten Hag probably masked his real feelings in his his post match interviews and his press conference because he wasn't too negative. But if you listen to uh, Gary Neville, I mean, he said the midfield got ripped apart and that Casemiro got torn to sh- sh- shreds, and I think. I think he's probably right. I think Wolves put up an excellent display, but yeah, Man United allowed them to uh, allowed them confidence. It's sort of that first fifteen minutes when United didn't impose themselves, it gave Wolves the confidence to to express themselves in possession. And United just never sort of never got a foothold in the game, not with substitutions, not, not with any breaks in the game. Uh, and they rolled the look and got the three points after quality for the goal. What did you make of, you know, performances from big players? From I mean, you mentioned Casemiro there, big player for them, but Marcus Rashford really struggled to get into the game. You know, I think that was possibly the quietest I've seen him over the past year. I know he's playing central rather than from the left, but is it a concern for Man United that their players, you know, I don't think anybody came out of that game smelling of roses. Yeah, it was concerning, especially after, I mean, United played a lot of games last year, but the preseason did feel quite fresh in that they had the the bulk of the team together early. Even the new signings were there by mid to late July and they had a few friendlies where this lineup uh, was playing together and it was a concern that, I mean, listen, Marcus Rashford knows his best position and everybody else knows that not striker, but he does struggle to impose himself, whether it be physically, you know, a lot of challenges in the air. He does struggle to win headers and he does have space and much freedom on the ball when he's up front. I think Garnacho was a big disappointment for a lot of fans, especially in the ground. I think whenever he gets the ball, usually Old Trafford really gets to the feet, uh, more so than when Anthony gets it, but he was pretty wasteful. And that might be a sign of the year he was going to have, a bit of a learning year, and he's going to have to go through the ups and downs. Um, Fernandes, I think Bruno Fernandes struggled to get in the game because this is a new midfield, uh, and that probably was the basis of United being disjointed in that. Mason Mount is now the midfielder to be box to box and Fernandez can't come as deep and he's he's just not getting on the ball as much. And I think after about half an hour, it started to be one of those games where you're thinking, is he in the game? And usually Fernandez is always popping up and making himself involved in some way. But yeah, it was concerning. Even the defence, I mean, Lissandra Martinez, first proper game back at Old Trafford after that long injury towards the end of last season. And he was very fired up and that early yellow card totally took his game off because uh, he just he had to pull out of challenges. He wasn't played his sort of natural way, his aggressive way, which Varane needs next to him. And Ten Hag was uh, to the decision promptly just just to bring him off. So yeah, it was worrying. Um, 
to sort of see players come back like that. But even sometimes the best of sides don't start particularly well. So Alex Ferguson's United used to be a little bit sloppy at the start of the season. So uh, it's not nothing to worry about at the moment, but it's it can mark it as a concern how many players just weren't up to it. We'll jump to the VAR decision that cost Wolves a penalty at the end of the game. Andre Onana, I thought, had a good game up to that point. He made lots of saves. I think Wolves had 23 shots. I don't know how many they had on target, but they must have been heading towards double figures on target. They did pepper that Man United goal. Onana did really well, and then a cross comes in the box. He decides to come out and clatter. the. I think it was um, Craig Dawson, the Wolves defender, just completely clattered him. Took him out. I mean, I was expecting a penalty. I was watching it live thinking, well, this is going to get VAR checked and he's going to send him to the screen and it'll be a penalty. And, you know, he didn't send him to the screen. The The decision was made that it wasn't a clear and obvious error. Since came out that uh, Gary O'Neill's had an apology from John Moss to say it was a blatant penalty and it should have been given. What did you make of that whole situation? <laughs> It was just, it was a real shock, I think. I think on the opening day, on the opening weekend of the season, you do tend to get decisions where, whether it be new rules, the referees and players have had all the meetings. And last season, there was a little bit of a debate forming when goalkeeping out and plattering players in the box. Because nowadays with the modern style of goalkeeper, that proactive way of doing it, and that's how Onana plays, they're going to collide with outfielders more. I mean, Jose Sarker, I'm rushing out in the second half uh, and sort of tied into Anthony, but not as much. But it was just so surprising when the replay showed it was so, Onana was so far from the ball and Kalajic was just, he was just so vulnerable and he got absolutely clattered. Um, and I just think everybody in the, I'm not sure in the ground, but anybody watching it on the replays, it was just, it was just ominous that it would be a penalty. Um, and I think it was just such a surprise when it wasn't, given or at least he wasn't told to check. I think that's that seemed like meeting drin for VAR. You know, a big a bit of a scramble, a bit of a melee. Referee has to play on because the attack's still going. Uh, and there was a feeling that VAR would come back to it. But to not give it, Gary O'Neill was obviously shocked. He obviously got a booking for his uh, appeal, which they tried to stamp out those animated appeals. But my mind went back to the World Cup when we saw um, Wojciech Szczesny when he sort of collided with Lidl Messi in the box. Chesney was about half a foot from actually punching the ball away and he's fit his hand on, he sort of brushed Messi's face. Uh, and the VAR team sent the referee over. Referee then gave a penalty. Um, and if that is a penalty in the law book, but Onana's isn't, I, I'm not really I'm not really sure where the uh, what the rule is for that because um, whether it's if you make contact with someone's face or the pace the goalkeeper comes out or how high it is, I mean, I don't know what the explanation is, and it will be fascinating to hear the audio of what has been said between the referee and the video assistant referee at Stockley Park because it, it just seemed baffling as to why it wasn't given. There must be some sort of rule or, or whether they'll just go with the clear and obvious line. It was it was a stone wall, don't they? And I think it was just astonishment that it wasn't given. For me, this is why we always brought in, because I think 10 years ago, that's always a penalty. It always has been a penalty. A keeper coming out, missing the ball, clattering a player has always been a penalty. But they were the kind of ones you wouldn't see given in a game. You'd see a corner happen and the, the, the keeper maybe clatters on because there's so much happening in the box on them instances. I think the referees were sometimes a bit nervous to give penalties in them instances. So this is why VAR exists and has been brought in. And it just seems mind-boggling to me that a, a, 
a fully trained top level official who's on that that VAR looks at that and just doesn't think blatant penalty. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. And human error, I can forgive human error on the pitch. Something happens on the pitch and the referee, you know, he has to interpret that in a second and make a, a quick decision. And I can forgive human error on them kinds of things. Same with offsides as well because the split decisions. But he's had two minutes to look at that decision. And as you say, the ball stayed in place. So he's looking at that decision for two, three minutes, as long as he wants and decides that that's okay. It just, it doesn't make any sense. And I think Gary O'Neill, to his credit, could have been so much harsher in his post-match press conference. But actually, I think he came out with that with a touch of class and, you know, he, he didn't seem to go in as two-footed on the referee as he maybe should have. But, you know, what, what does this say about the state of VAR if this isn't a decision that gets made? I think it's just left a lot of people wondering, like, that, you know, as you say, VAR was brought in to, to sort of stamp out those crazy decisions where the referee inside or just couldn't make the decision. But on a replay, you see that it's, it's clearly a penalty. But you, you cast your mind back just over 24 hours to what happened at Brentford. Youngin Son sort of um, clipped Janel in the box for, for um, oh sorry, Jensen in the box for Brentford and it was given as a penalty from VAR and I think Tottenham fans were thinking, well, if that gets called back for a clear and obvious error, which I'm not sure it was when it's just sort of little coming together that does happen plenty of times in the game, you've seen them not give them for sure. But for VAR to actually instruct the referee, come back and then give it, for that process to happen, there's so much thinking that goes into that and obviously, over the two minutes, we all see it play out. So when we're watching the situation with Onara, we're all seeing it play out, all seeing the replays and your opinions forming. I'm not really sure. It certainly hasn't helped transparency. It's, it's not a great start for the officials because often in a new season, they sort of like to come out come out saying, you know, we'll, we'll be more transparent this year. This year, you know, ultimately they'll improve. And uh, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, I've been to see Howard Webb, Sky had done a little bit of a, a feature on the referees and the VAR boots. And I understand that they're trying to trying to sort of normalize fans with the, the process and things like that, but it's just it, it's just baffling when you see things like that happen. And it's only gonna make the jeopardy of VAR even worth having even more. Um I think at the start everyone a lot of people were on board, but now it's just a case of well. Is, is this the right thing long-term to have VAR involved? Because I'm not sure they'll ever be, it doesn't seem to ever be implemented consistently and it's been around for, I think this will now be its sixth season that it'll be in the in the English game at the elite level. Yeah, it does feel like they've never quite nailed that down. Touch finally, actually two final things on this game. Onana, obviously we talked about the penalty decision, a mixed debut for him it's fair to say because really the talking point coming from this game should probably be his error at the end of the game cost Manchester United two points provided Wolves scored the penalty which to be fair looking at Wolves finishing in that game I don't know if they would have necessarily scored that penalty but that should be the the narrative coming out of this game Onana's got away with one I think Ten Hag deflected off him by saying he didn't think it was a penalty and I think he was correct to do that even though we know that he knows it's a penalty because anybody who knows anything about football knows that's a penalty but what did you make of his debut and is that a, an upgrade for Manchester United from what you saw yesterday from David De Gea? Yeah I mean uh, 
I think Man United fans were quite quick to get excited about his performance, especially since nobody else really played well. Um, he was solid. He made two good saves on his feet that, you know, obviously you'd expect a goalkeeper to make, but he was commanding. He was assured. And I think the best thing is he is decisive. I don't think there's that second of hesitation, which you got with David De Gea a lot. I think that was almost the issue with, the biggest issue is that sometimes De Gea maybe would try the pass. He would come out to claim it, but it was the uncertainty. And I think Onana is so decisive and so clear. It is helpful for teammates and for fans on the terraces when, when they're looking and thinking, is, is he coming for this or is he going to make that pass? You know Onana will try almost the boldest the, the boldest option. But yeah, he was solid. Um, but yeah, had the penalty been given. I mean, if he saves the penalty, is it here bro? for my Premier League team to give it and then he save it. But uh, ultimately, he did go away with a clean sheet um, and, and it was a solid debut bar that. And I, I guess he learned from that. And like for the rest of United's players, last night will serve as a let-off and a bit of a warning and maybe a bit of a reality check if anyone was getting ahead of themselves. And we'll just touch a little bit on Wolves before going on to the overall uh, first weekend of the season. But Wolves... Were much better, I think, than most people thought. I think the narrative for them heading into the season was losing the manager, you know, not being particularly active in the transfer market, losing some key players. I think people have them as possibly a third or fourth favourite to go down behind Sheffield United, Luton, maybe Everton Wolves. They seem to be the teams that I see um, lobbied about for relegation. But from watching them, Yesterday, I don't see a reason why they should be worried about relegation trouble because they look like a strong group that knows its style of play. Yes, they've got issues in the final third. They've had that for four or five years now, really. I mean, well, maybe three since the COVID year. It's been a while that Wolves are struggling from the goal. But if they can just sort out the finishing, they should be mid-table Premier League. Yeah, I think the... The big thing, if Wolves can find that goal scorer or, or find a rhythm in attack, because there's a lot of talent there. Like players, I mean, Cunha last night was was a man possessed at times, but you did never feel that they were quite threatened in front of goal. There weren't so many clear cut chances, you know, of the 23 shots. I'm not sure many very much troubled United defence or or Onara. Um, but they were really good, and I think it, I think it'll just come as a a sort of reminder that you're never as bad as you, you're never as good as you think you are and you're also never as bad as you think you are because I think Wolves thought we're in total crisis here. This is at least got to be a miserable next few weeks. And it was probably the most confident boost in performance they've had for a long, long time. Gary Neville said it was the best he's seen Wolves play. Uh, now, that Wolves team is sort of the least recognisable side. You know, they've obviously got Gary O'Neill in his first game after being there for such a short period of time. I think it just shows that the ability to galvanise a team in football can be quite quick. And I think they've got to sort of capitalise on it because it's all well and good saying we did well at Old Trafford, but unfortunately they did come away with a defeat and no goals. But the way they played, the way they set up uh, and the way they broke through United's midfield, you know, better midfields and better attacks will will absolutely pull United if they play like that. But no, Wolves are impressive. And I think, you know, there'll be so much encouragement from that both uh, on the pitch and off the pitch as well, because you know it need, Wolves are a club that need a little bit of stability at the moment because of how much change is going on and, and all the uncertainty surrounding the club. I think that it was just an impressive performance, and it's one that takes us by surprise when everyone's tipping them to go down. And me, I had them to go with 
Sheffield United and Luton. But um, yeah, I think that certainly uh, food for thought, whether it's ta- transfer targets, maybe not going there. Maybe people think, well, this could be a prospect here because they have got talented players. And as we've seen in recent years, they have, uh, you know, there's there's the ability to play really good football there. And Gary O'Neill will be desperate to prove uh, Bournemouth wrong for letting him go. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So onto the first weekend of the season. Um, as a Sunderland fan, this this pains me. But Newcastle, obviously the top of the table at the moment, they started strong. I think most people looked at their game with Aston Villa as two teams that are they're probably hoping to vie for certainly top six, but possibly even have top four aspirations. But Newcastle start the season a five-one win. You know, are they? a team now that we'll see are, are the title contenders or is that too strong early in the season? Because you look back at the start of last season, they actually started really slow last season. I think they only had one win from that first sort of six or seven games. If they start this strong this year and then continue that momentum they had from the end of last season, you know, they could be certainly an early title contender, a team that's in that top sort of two until Christmas or will Champions League football catch up with them? I mean, what, what do you make of Newcastle after the opening day? Yeah, I thought they were really impressive. And St James's Park, where it's rocking like that, you know, Saturday night half five, it was it was just a brilliant performance. But yeah, I think Eddie Howe, he won't be too pleased because the type of manager he is, he'll know that Aston Villa obviously breached them a few times, and the game just went wayward. It felt like one team was eventually it was a, it was a bit like a boxing match where it was just blow for blow, and eventually Aston Villa just sort of lost it and fell apart. But you know, the game was in a balance for, for quite a lot of that first half. But yeah, I mean, it was really impressive. And I guess it's a reminder to anyone sort of thinking that Newcastle were going to be a one-season hit that, that they're not because the team Eddie Howe's built is a... It does, does look like a consistently solid team. It, it does, it's built the right way, it plays the right way. It's not not been many flukes about it. But this is going to be a year of of tests like you say with with the Champions League whether that takes their eye off the Premier League I think our newcomers will be desperate to lift a trophy um, but as you say it seems like there's about eight teams who'll fancy themselves for the top four this year and almost by default people are counting Newcastle but yeah right now as you said you know Behind Man City, you've got them, at, uh, New, you know, obviously Newcastle, Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea now, where they have a bit of confidence, Liverpool, who will be looking to challenge up until the springtime. And you can't run out Newcastle doing that because they've, they've improved, they're only going one way. Uh, and it would be silly to say that it's all going to come to a halt. So I wouldn't say the title contenders yet, but they certainly put out the right statement and they will have to take it game by game. Uh, as they, as they did last year and it ended up well for them. So we'll have to see. There's got to be so much that happens there in the next uh, few months. Um, it's really going to prove whether Eddie Howe and the squad are up to the challenge of 
of challenging right at the top. Man City, they made a, a pretty good statement on Friday night at the start of the season. Erlen Haaland bagged himself a brace, just sort of continued, I suppose. Well, not even continued where he left off, because I, mean, I think he ended the season with a bit of a, I say a goal drought, not really a goal drought, but a bit of a goal drought for him. Um, but he gets on the board two goals early on. Everyone's happy with the fantasy football team as well. I think 90% selected, wasn't he? So most people are getting the points there. But that's a, you know, Man City going into that game at Burnley. It could have been a difficult one. We've seen in the past that Turf Moor can be a place where where big teams struggle, particularly early in the season. And, you know, they just went there comfortable, you know, won the game without really breaking a sweat. I thought it was very impressive, but I think it also shows the hunger of that team after finally winning the Champions League last year, winning the treble, you know, there could be an argument that their eyes could be off the ball potentially a little bit, you know, rest on the laurels, but they don't look like a team that's rest on the laurels. They look like they're here to make it four straight Premier League titles. Yeah, it was uh, it was so ominous in a way, that, that the way that everyone checked the score and after four minutes, the one they looked, because I think there was a feeling that first game Friday night, Burnley, the Vincent Company factor, um, and yeah, City come back off that treble, you know, the, the team that have had the least time to prepare and a group of players that had had everything and it was just this absolute climax of of City's entire project and the whole Guardiola era to win the Champions League. And I think, you know, so City sometimes don't start great and I think that it, that could just be a, you know, a sign that Guardiola's just got this, he's got this ability to put hunger in his players and keep them going uh, I mean, you look the little debate he had at halftime with Haaland. That was so fascinating because it, it just showed that he, even though there were there were two goals to the good and Haaland had got them, um, that there was this absolute desire that everything had to be spot on. There was no room for any sort of issues to be let slide because it was the first game of the season. They were just properly on it. It was a proper performance. And uh, I felt sorry for Burnley because I thought they did okay. I thought James Trafford in goal put her in a great account of himself. Few other younger players. It was a little bit unfortunate with the red card at the end, um, but it, it was a red card. It, you saw on the replay; it was it was a pretty dangerous lunge. But yeah, to start off like that was uh, probably knocked a little bit of confidence to your likes of Arsenal, Newcastle, Man United to think, oh, City are already uh, doing what they do best. But um, yeah, you can't count them out for anything this year. Um, it's it, it could be another clean sweep, or it could be. Uh, you know, they're still uncertain too with the transfer market, whether who stays and who goes. But at the moment, they're, they're clearly the favourites to win the league and rightly so when, when they perform like that out the blocks. So we'll switch to the, the other end of the table. I think there's three teams whose results really stuck out for me and certainly watching the highlights. Sheffield United, you know, they've got problems. We all know that they've got problems off the pitch. That The squad's weaker than what it was last year. They've lost loan players. They've lost players to sales. Um, you know, even losing Sander Birch to Burning, just a strange bit of business when you're losing to a, another relegation candidate player. They lose against Crystal Palace at home. Not a good sign. Luton, I mean, they could have lost 9-1 against Brighton. It was one-way traffic, um, about as bad as it can get really for a first game of the season. I know Brighton are a good team, but that game could easily have been how many times did Brighton hit the post? Three, four times it seemed. It was just one-way traffic. And then Everton, you watch them, they lose. They played well, well enough against Fulham. Probably deserved more from the game, but we all know that their issues are in the final third. The fact they can't score goals and they lose 1-0 in a game where they, they maybe could have scored a few goals with a 
fully fit Dominic Calvert-Lewin, but he's not been fully fit for seemingly years now. They were the three teams that I think had the most worrying signs from the weekend. Speaking as a Sunderland fan, as I mentioned earlier, who's seen a 15-point season and a 19-point season, I wouldn't bet against one of Sheffield United or Luton getting in that region of points from what we saw on the opening day. Maybe I'm being overreactive, but to me, it feels like Sheffield United and Luton in particular are far weaker than the other teams in the Premier League. Yeah, it's a real, uh, I guess it's a bit of a reality check weekend um, for those two sides. I mean, I don't think the fans were under, their fans were any, under any illusions when they came up that it would be difficult. And you do feel sorry for Sheffield United because the the best players have been sort of plugged and getting back into the Premier League, having already had a little stint up over two years, you know, could this be the time to build and establish themselves? And it looks already like they could be back down and possibly preparing to win the championship next time out. And I think Luton will be the same. I think Luton's promotion is feels to me a little reminiscent of uh, what Burnley did in 2014 when they kept the core of the team together, went down and then came back up play really strengthened. So if either team is relegated, it's not the end of the world. You know, it's not it's not some of the sort of uh, um relegations we'd have seen. But you know, everyone said Bournemouth last year. I mean everyone put them dead bottom, said it was a championship squad and it just won't do the business and they were safe with a few games to go. So you can't rule anything out and you know that with the Premier League money and the you know kind of players that these teams can attract now, there may be a surprise before deadline day and the managers constrain odds, and you just don't know. But yeah, Everton was a, a shame, a very unfortunate disallowed goal, I think. Um, but you know, and again, I think Fulham people were considering would have a bit of a down year. Um, but that was a good start for them. And yeah, when West Ham obviously played Bournemouth, two teams that people might consider to be in that scrap, um, they obviously drew, but I think. Both those clubs will be heavily dependent on the recruitment. Obviously, West Ham are going through a bit of a shake-up with the Rice move. Bournemouth look like they've brought in some really uh, savvy signings, but you know, with the new manager, will he be able to implement that style of play in order to get the results um, sharpish because you know the pressure comes on quick? It is a different hierarchy last year than who sacked Scott Parker so early, but the pressure will still be on uh, and the Gary O'Neill decision will still be fresh. But yeah, I think it's very hard to call right now um, with the relegations because like I say Bournemouth last year reminded everyone that there's, there's no um, there's no sort of clear favourites for relegation um, and you just don't know what there'll, there'll always be a surprise and a lot of people assume Burnley would stay up but you know oh, oh, there'd be a bit of a Norwich situation when Norwich came up having you know beasted the championship great football and then the time comes in the Premier League when they're trying to play that possession style and it doesn't quite work so it will be interesting to see. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I'll probably stick with Sheffield United and Luton to go down still. Um, but I, I find it hard sticking with Wolves after how they played last night. No, turn off. Maybe I'm, I don't know, from watching Luton last season in the Championship, I just don't see how their style of play translates to the Premier League and the other thing with them is is not having a game this current weekend when they would have should have been playing Burnley at home I mean that could have been three points which which kickstarts their season I think that's a a real blow for them not being able to have that first home game 
um, so early in the season. But we'll jump now. Some transfer news. Or I suppose it should really be deals that are done because Moises Casiedo, that's done. He's, he's went to Chelsea. We're going to also insert Lavier in there as well because he looks like he's set to move to Chelsea as well. So Chelsea get two midfield targets. Liverpool's two midfield targets go to Chelsea. Yeah, Liverpool do. I think Liverpool fans are getting you know, a fair bit tetchy over um, how their midfield is going to look this season. Uh, whereas Chelsea now can be really confident. You know, Mauricio Pochettino, you know, explained how they were short like pre-season in midfield and that was a bit of a concern. But now suddenly Chelsea look like they have a real long-term fit. For Lavin and Caseda to both pull, you know, both uh, work out with the transfer fee, it'll be... For both of them too, Enzo Fernandez was was brilliant against Liverpool, but again, there is some question marks around just because they are so young, and, and I guess that's the large question mark over Chelsea. And I think Caicedo, you know, he's he's so talented, he knows his pedigree, the fact he can also play at right back, and he's been in such a good system under both Graham Potter and Roberto De Zerbi that you'd think Pochettino would absolutely love working with him. Um, so, yeah, it's the price tag is obviously huge, um, and it, it does draw question marks naturally because it seems the higher you go in fees, the less deals will work out. There's not many transfers that have breached the hundred million mark or even the ninety million mark that have actually worked out. Um, you look down the, you know, from Lukaku to you know Griezmann, the Pogba deal. It seems like the higher you go, the moves just don't seem to work out. But um, last one before we sign off for the day. Um, Arsenal defender Gabriel lined up for a move to Saudi Arabia, apparently. So a bit of a surprising move. He's been a bit of a linchpin at the back for Arsenal over the last few years. Do you think that's something that's likely to happen or do you think it's just paper talk? Yeah, John Cross, uh, our own, had that story last night. Um, and it was interesting. Yeah, I guess it comes as a surprise. But then again, is anything surprised with this, you know, the Saudi league? Can't quite rule any move out after what we've seen. Um, but yeah, Gabriel left out on the weekend. Um, clearly an asset for Arteta, you know, left footed, has been at the club for a few years, recently got a new long-term contract and he thinks that he would be um, part of that core and that spine that Arteta's building. But you look at the signs of Jakob Kivior, who came in in January, Arteta seems to to really rate him. Yuri Timber can obviously play as a centre-back. Um, Tommy Asu's still at the club and obviously Saliba is that is that main rock uh, in the back line. So, yeah, it's interesting whether he'll consider it or which club's in for him. Feels like a player, you know, who's obviously linked first to the actual league and see which club. Um, there's obviously a few Premier League stars like obviously Fabinho, is a Brazilian compatriot, has gone there. Um, and I, I suppose you can't rule out anyone being tempted. I think if someone like John Henderson could be pulled away from captain in Liverpool and having such a legacy... And you can't rule out a player who, who, yes, you'd assume he's a starter for Arsenal, but maybe he's not all the time from saying, no, I'm going to make the move. And, you know, he'll bring in Arsenal funds. I think that's what Premier League clubs are looking at. Anyone struggling with financial fair play or want to balance the books, it's very, very handy to have a Saudi club in for your player because they can probably spend that transfer fee that a, a Spanish or Italian club maybe want to be able to afford and then maybe look at a loan deal or something short term. So yeah, it's it might be mutually beneficial, but just shows how quick, uh, quickly things can change when you're building a team 
Uh, and Arteta may well want to keep Gabriel, but if there's a big beard in the players' heads turned, then you might have to accept it and, and regroup on that that position on the left-hand side of a centre-back. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see now with Julian Timber's injury, whether or not Arsenal just shut this one down now and go, you know what, he can't leave. Um, but thanks, Nathan, for joining us today um, and reviewing it the opening weekend of the season. I'm sure there'll be many twists and turns to come from now until the end of the year. And thanks everybody for listening this morning. <laughs>